You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Question for you. What should life look like after we come to faith in Jesus? Like, what changes? What's different? Different people come to different conclusions on the topic. We won't talk about all of them. But for some, and this is one I've seen show up in the life of the church with some regularity over the last 20 years or so. It's gone longer than that, but that's kind of my experience. For some, salvation is kind of a one-and-done deal. Does that make sense? You walk the aisle, you kneel at the altar, you go to the revival, you say the prayer, maybe you sign the card, you fill out the survey, you're on the team, you're done. You're good. Nothing else to do. You prayed the prayer, you believed in Jesus, you got saved. Gravy. This kind of approach to salvation puts little emphasis on life after conversion. Conversion is the moment we offer ourselves to Jesus the first time, we trust Him the first time. Little energy or no focus whatsoever on the character of the Christian life. So what does life look like after we come to faith in Jesus? And friends, I've been in ministry situations, sometimes deeply grievous ministry situations, where people have been on their deathbed, or I've walked into hospital rooms, family members of people to whom I was a pastor, but maybe I wasn't a pastor to the person who was dying. And in those situations, I'll ask, I'll, ask, I'll just say, does this person have a church, a pastor? And that helps me know, am I, <laughs> am I, am I the pastor here? Or is there somebody else who I can support? Is somebody else coming along? And there have been times, one in particular stands out in my memory, where the family said of this person who would, who would die soon, oh no, she hasn't been to church in 20-something years, but she got saved. And when I hear that sort of sentiment in that sort of setting, it breaks my heart. Because it means we, the church, have offered people a false sense of security. A false sense of what God's grace accomplishes and how it works. This family told me a story of a teenage girl who went down front at some sort of event, gave her life to Jesus, went off, and nothing changed not trying to make a comment on the sincerity of that young girl at that moment. Simply that somehow, some way, the church said, you're good. And never asked, is there evidence of God's grace bearing fruit in your life? And when we do that, Let's call it 
ministry malpractice. When we do that, we offer people a truncated gospel, if it's any gospel at all. A deeply unbiblical vision of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And a false sense of security. So what does life after conversion look like? What should our own lives be oriented towards? What sort of things ought we to be engaged in? What should we be cultivating? And what should we be teaching our children? Like, you know, when they show up to the youth revival or, or when somebody shows up to a special event and they do feel something and they do profess faith in Jesus, do we just sort of let them go back to life as usual? Or do we help them down a path of discipleship to connect with other believers and become part of the mission and serve alongside other Christians so that that thing that has taken root in their life can grow and develop so that they can bear fruit, so they can be transformed. What does that look like and and, and what should be the guiding principle? And when we come to Galatians chapter 5, we get a vision of the character of the Christian life, don't we? I mean, here's Paul saying, your life could look like this, but it should look like that. And they're very different deeply opposed. We'll get into that in a moment. If we're going to sum it up though, maybe we can hold on to this. Right? If we're talking about belonging to Jesus, if we're talking about life after Christ takes hold of us, if we're talking about subsequent to conversion, like after I came down front and prayed the prayer, or after I was in my room by myself and I felt the Spirit of God move in my heart and I wept in conversion. Like, what happens after that? After Jesus takes hold of me and I belong to Him, for Paul, for us, for the Galatians, for this church, belonging to Christ means we crucify the flesh and cultivate the Spirit. And we're going to talk more about that. But for now... There's two pieces there. Number one, crucify the flesh. Number two, cultivate the Spirit. Bottom line, right there. Belonging to Christ means we crucify the flesh in order to cultivate the Spirit. Now, the whole thing here turns on one big contrast, doesn't it? In fact, verse 22, Paul says, by contrast. And contrast means we got two things. We're going to set them side by side, and they're different. Like we want to highlight the differences between these two things. This one's not that one. That one's not this one. They're distinct. And the two terms he uses, and we're going we're gonna to dig into this, try to get clear on what he means by this. One is flesh, and the other is spirit. And he says these two things in verse 16, or verse 17, are opposed to each other. Just listen to these verses again. Galatians 5.16, live by the Spirit, I say, do not gratify the desires of the flesh, right? So if, you're, if, you're live, if your life is ordered by the Spirit of God, then you're not living in this life of flesh gratification. Again, we're going to talk about what flesh means in a minute. Just to, like right, right now, we're trying to understand the stark contrast, right? So if we're given to the Spirit, it means we're not gratifying the flesh. Verse 17, for what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit. So, right, so it's not even like one or the other, and either option's fine. It's these two are in opposition to one another. They are embattled. They are set opposed, flesh and Spirit. 
What the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit. What the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. Listen to the language of desire. Like this is God's Spirit. An agent who is at work powerfully in the lives of the people of God to do something. But whatever he's doing is opposed to this other thing called flesh. So for starters, let's just understand, for Paul, spirit, flesh, mutually exclusive. Like you don't get both. It's not have your cake and eat it too. It's one or the other. In every moment of our lives, every decision we make, when we do things, all things, we are choosing to either live according to the Spirit of God or gratify the flesh. In that moment when somebody did something at work, and I'd really like to give them a piece of my mind. <laughs> no one's ever been there. Am I going to live by the Spirit? Or will I gratify the flesh? When my children fill in the blank. <laughs> will I live by the Spirit? Gratify the flesh. So there's this deep contrast, mutual exclusivity between the Spirit and the flesh. But what are these? Like, we have a good idea what, what Paul means when he talks about the Spirit, the Spirit of God, God's presence at work in us. We'll talk more about that. But, but what's this flesh language all about? And it's easy to get confused, right? Because sometimes when Paul uses the word flesh, he just means my body, like this stuff, pinchable, touchable, like you shake hands with your hand and it's covered with flesh. And that's kind of a neutral term for Paul, and it just means your body. Other times, he uses the word flesh in a morally negative sense. That's where we are in Galatians chapter 5. So it's not my physical body, it's something else. It's not just my hands and my feet and my eyes, but my flesh, my skin. It's not that. He's not talking about my physicality in Galatians 5. He's talking about something else. What's he talking about? For Paul, the negative uses of the flesh, when flesh is opposed to spirit, God's spirit, he is talking about human life in corruption. Human life in opposition to God. Human life that's contrary to the life God designed for us and intended for us. Human life given to sin. Human life turned in on itself. I'm going to have my way no matter what. And when we read through the works of the flesh in a moment, that kind of image, I'm going to have my way no matter what, is on everyone. For Paul, the flesh is human life, the negative uses of the flesh, not the kind of neutral, just talking about my physicality. Because for Paul, the physical body is a good thing that one day God's going to raise from the dead. We said that in the creeds. We recognize that. But this negative use of the term flesh is human life in principled opposition to God. So if there's something in my life that is opposed to God and His purposes for me and the world, we're going to call that the flesh. Now there's two further aspects of this. It's come out in different places in, in Paul's writings. Number one, 
our flesh, that's a way of talking about our captivity. Like we're captive to sin. So we come into the world as infants, and we're cute most of the time, and sweet, and people want to like pinch our cheeks, but we're sinners. We sin, like our, our nature is corrupted, and we're captive to that, and we just do it. And we, as we get older, we, we can feel the compulsion. We can feel like, I know I shouldn't do that, but I'm compelled to, and I'm, I'm going to say it, or I'm going to do it, I'm going to behave in this way. We're captives. We know the right thing, we don't do it. That resonates with us. A sense of captivity. We're slaves. And that's why we need Jesus to set us free. That's why we need the Spirit to come and set us free from that captivity. So when Paul talks about the flesh, he's talking about human life in opposition to God with an aspect of captivity. Like, I'm a slave to something apart from Jesus. But it's not just captivity. It's not just the fact that some power has got hold of me and I'm just sort of an innocent bystander and can't do anything about it. There's also an aspect of complicity. We are complicit with the flesh. We give ourselves to it. We want to do it. We know what we ought to do. We don't do it. We feel compelled, and we want to do it. So this language of flesh for Paul involves captivity, like I'm a slave to this, and complicity, I'm giving myself to this. It's a pretty robust vision of human life coming into the world in its natural, or I should say, subnatural state. I want you to hear me say I'm intentionally avoiding the language of sin nature. Sometimes, and you may have noticed this in your translations, Paul's word flesh gets translated sinful nature. And it makes it sound like, when we translate it that way, right? Paul wrote in Greek, we speak English, most of us anyway. And when we translate this word flesh to sinful nature, we're try, the translators are trying to get this idea of this principle of opposition to God. They're trying to steer clear of assuming our physicality is a bad thing. The trouble is... If we assume our natures are fundamentally sinful, then what do we need to be rescued from? Our humanity. Follow? I get that may feel a little thick. But if we think our human nature is at its essence and being corrupted and sinful, then I'm in a position to say the thing I need to get free from isn't just my sin, it's my humanity. Trouble with that is Christmas. <laughs> Jesus became human. And his humanity wasn't corrupted. He didn't have sinful human being. So flesh is more, I'm a human being 
who's been corrupted. I have a human nature that's been infected with this cancer, and I give myself to the sickness. Not, I have a sinful human nature that I need to get set free from to become something else. Okay? Jesus didn't come to save us from our humanity. He came to save our humanity from sin. Jesus did not come to save us from our human nature. He came to save our human nature from the corrupting power of sin. When he uses the word flesh, it's this corrupting power of sin with which we are, so, we are complicit. So what does this look like in real life? Well, we've got a list with 15 options. And if those 15 options aren't good, you've got a things like these at the end. So, you know, if, if you're reading through this and you're like, I'm good, you know, like I'm not there, haven't done any of the stuff on the list. I'll be surprised if you haven't done any of the stuff on the list. Probably you're lying if you think, if you're, so, yeah, it's kind of inclusive, isn't it? But just in case you get through all 15, I think it's 15 of these, all, if you, just in case you get through, through all 15, Paul's like, you know, and any works of the flesh. So what does he mean? When we are under the power of sin, when our human natures are captive and complicit with sin in opposition to God, in opposition to nature, all through Paul, sin is always opposed to what's natural. It's not natural. It's opposed to what's natural. It degrades nature. It kills what the good things God has made. And so Paul gives us this list. Here's what that power in my life, here's what it looks like. Here's what my complicity looks like. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Now here's the thing. We could do the easy, we could, we could do this the easy way and just focus on the big bad stuff, right? And then we'd all feel better, because most of us haven't done the big bad stuff, and we're kind of, all right, that, yeah. Let's talk about other people there. But what I want to do is invite you to look at the things that we would consider lesser offenses, smaller sins, that we easily give ourselves a pass on. Can you pick them out? If you still have your Bibles open, I hope you do. Most of us would come along and read, yeah, idolatry. I don't have to, I've not committed idolatry. I don't have any little statues in my house. I hope you don't. Sorcery. No one's practicing witchcraft around. Like, we don't think so. If you do, you haven't told us about it. The big stuff, like we're not there. But then we get along and we read enmities and strife. And those are kind of similar. And we start thinking, you know, <laughs> I've been in places in church where I've been having coffee with somebody from my Sunday school class, and they start talking about somebody in their small group. <laughs> and it's not a favorable comment. Or it's not something they should have said. 
and maybe it's and maybe it's designed to set my heart against that person. We're cunning with this, you know. Oh, I need you to pray for this person in my small group. She's really going through some stuff. We easily couch gossip and disguise it as a prayer request so that we can have the self-gratification of being the one who knew and the one who told and the pious appearance of actually caring about this person's soul because after all it's a prayer request but what we're doing is degrading that person's character in front of another person and cultivating enmity and strife so you may not do witchcraft But quarrels, guessing we've been there. Anger, we are told, is a work of the flesh. We'll distinguish between the righteous anger that Jesus embodies at times and that his people are able to embody at other times. This for Paul is a self-gratifying anger. I'm going to get my way no matter what. Quarrels, dissensions, factions. Factions? We joke about church conflicts, don't we? Debates over the color of the carpet and the kind of music and stuff like that. We make light of it, but did you know it's really a work of the flesh to do that sort of thing? We're the this kind of music people. They're the that kind of music people. Guess what that is? That's a faction. Guess what it does? It cultivates dissension. We prefer it this way. They prefer it that way. Our class does it this way. Their class does it that way. We want to do it here. We want to go there. And every time we start sectioning ourselves off according to preference and not like non-negotiable, doctrinal, basic elements of the Christian. Like there are things we'll, we'll, there are hills we'll die on. Color of the carpet ain't one of them. <laughs> we easily, easily slide into these things that we, we just give ourselves a pass on. Because we have the greater good. Like, if this is for the church. It's for the good of the church. So I'm going to cause a fight for the good of the church. And we kind of justify ourselves. And Paul says, that's the work of the flesh, and you won't inherit the kingdom of God. So this is the piece, friends, like like we can read, this is what I mean when I say we read this stuff and it's familiar to us, right? And the list is long, and yeah, sorcery, idolatry, impurity, okay, I get it. And by the time he gets to, to anger and factions and envy, like every one of us 
have a little computer that we carry around in our hand that cultivates envy nonstop all day long. I want that. I want what she has. I want what he has. I've got to have one of those. I need this. I want what everyone else has, and my life isn't good enough until I get it. Yeah. You may not have committed fornication, but how much of my time am I giving to scrolling through things that rot my soul with envy? It's easy to read over texts like this, familiar text, fruit of the Spirit and all, and just assume we know what it's about. But if we stop, slow down. We're right in the middle of that list. All of us. Now the good news is, it doesn't have to be that way. The gospel is, Jesus came to save us from the works of the flesh. Jesus came and suffered and bled and died to save us from captivity and complicity. From slavery to sin and that thing in all of us that gives ourselves to it. And that gratifying feeling when we say the thing we knew we shouldn't have said or do the thing we know we shouldn't have done. Jesus came to save us from that. And what he does as he rescues us, is he gives us his spirit. And so Paul can say in verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus. Those who belong to Christ Jesus. Do I belong to Christ? In case you didn't hear me, I said I preached a lot of short sermons over the last couple months. <laughs> Patrick comes in on Mondays and does it, and he's like, wow, Dad, 28 minutes, that's crazy. Last week it was 54. So we got like, you know, this day. But this is important. This is crucial. So here we are. Jesus came to set us free from envy and faction. And yeah, all the big stuff, yeah. But he came to set us free from the little stuff that rots our souls. And how does he do that? He gives his spirit. By contrast, verse 22, the fruit of the spirit 
is love. And you know this, don't you? Because you had to memorize it in children's church. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And one of the problems is we kind of section these things off and we start with the the fruit of the Spirit, but we don't put it against the, the works of the flesh. But that's how the passage works, right? You've got one thing that's not like the other thing, right? So fornication versus love. Impurity versus joy. Enmity versus gentleness. Faction versus self-control. Envy versus self-control. <laughs> right? Because at the end of the day, if I give myself to those desires in my heart that say, I want that thing that that person has, I'm envious of their place in life, it's, not so, it's, a, it's a failure of self-control. Now, Paul says all of these things you don't do on your own strength, right? If you try to do it on your own strength, you'll be in the first list. Then you'll make a mess of it. You'll be complicit with your your captor. But the Spirit comes. Jesus comes. Jesus takes those who belong to him, and he gives his Spirit. And if you have his Spirit, he gives you the power to kill the flesh. And think about how striking the metaphor is here, right? Because this is tough for us because none of us have actually seen a human being crucified before and Hollywood doesn't even come close. Like in the ancient world, they took you out if you were a criminal and hung you up on a pole, stripped you naked and beat you and left you there for the birds to eat your body till you die. They torture you to death. Crucifixion. And that's not only just what Jesus endures for us. It's a metaphor for what we should do to the flesh. Crucify it. Torture it to death. This isn't like a palliative care kind of thing. This is an aggressive, embattled, go get it and do not rest until it's dead. Why? Because if you don't, it will kill you. Theologian from eight years past, John Owen, famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. It will kill you. It will destroy you. It will take your relationships and shred them. It will take your soul and corrupt it. You will die. But you can have life. Instead of faction and envy and self-gratifying I'm going to have my way no matter who gets hurt. Instead of that, you can have abundant, overflowing, self-giving, perfect love. Abundant, overflowing joy. Instead of strife, you can have patience. Instead of enmity, 
Jesus can give you by his spirit a generous presence. See the contrast? See the difference? And the crucial thing for Paul, belonging to Christ means you land on one side, not the other. Belonging to Christ means crucifying the flesh to cultivate the spirit. And it's crucifying the flesh to cultivate the spirit. Because you can't have both. I can't give myself to envy and give myself to self-control at the same time. Like, that's one or the other. I can't be self-controllingly envious. That's a contradiction. And it's death. It's not real. It's fake. So Paul says, this, like, this is the thing. Give yourself to these things. Jesus died to give you this life of joy. And when you give yourself to the gossip at the coffee shop or wherever, it's death. It doesn't feel like death in the moment. It feels very gratifying in the moment. But in the long run, it'll kill you. So crucify it first. Nail your envy to the cross. And let it die. Nail your dissension and your factions and your impurity to the cross and let them die. Crucify the flesh to cultivate the spirit. And when you trust Jesus enough to say, you know what? I'd like to say that thing about the person in my small group so I can feel self-gratified, but Jesus, I love you more. So I'm not. And you and the power of your spirit can strengthen me for this battle. So I'm not going to say it. That's how you cultivate the spirit. And the next time it'll be a little easier. And then you'll become conditioned to it. Works the other way too. Every time I give in to the works of the flesh, next time that gets a little easier too. And I become conditioned to it. So the question for us we have this objective list of diagnostics. Is my life marked by increasing fruit? Or am I one of those people who prayed the prayer 20 years ago and showed up today for the baptism? Or because it's almost Easter and that's when you go. And I've never had a life marked by the fruit of the Spirit. Or maybe I've shown up for 20 years and have never had a life marked by the fruit of the Spirit. That happens too. Or maybe your life is increasingly marked by the fruit of the Spirit, but Jesus is saying, you know, there's that one little thing, or you think it's a little thing, but it's there, and you haven't given it to me yet. I want to make you whole. There's something here for all of us. There's an invitation here for all of us. Got to cru crucify the flesh to cultivate the spirit. Have to say no to the corruption. And then, then, life after conversion, after we belong to Jesus, after he's taken hold of us, 
is marked by wholeness, completeness, satisfaction in Jesus and in his spirit. So the only question really is, what do you want? What do you want? Do you want to be the kind of person whose life embodies the first list, including the small things, the easily excusable and justifiable things? Or do you want to be a person whose life is characterized by faithfulness and joy and generosity? Here's the catch. That's what Jesus' life looks like. Jesus is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, gentleness, and self-control. So the question is really, do you want Jesus? Josh, why don't you come play? And I want to invite you to just take a moment and do some self-evaluation. Better yet, ask the Spirit to do some evaluation. Is there a thing in my heart and in my life that is embodying the work of the flesh instead of the fruit of the Spirit? You may want to come and kneel. You may want somebody to pray with you. Just lift a hand. Jesus wants to make you whole. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org slash sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.